All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuckineers? What the fucksters? What's happening? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. This is my podcast. I'm back. I made it back. I made it back from Florida. I was there for Thanksgiving. How'd everyone do? Everybody okay? Let's say hi to some of the folks out there who are working in different environments. Shall we? I mean, it's hard for me to know where everyone's working, whether you're in labs or on the train or on a bike. And I know sometimes I go through a list of things. I can't represent everyone, but I'm always surprised when I get an email like this. Hey, Mark, I'm a huge fan. Not literally. My weight is acceptable. Writing to you from the Turkish side of the Syrian border. We have 12 hours of guard duty in the trenches every night. It's dead silent outside, freezing cold. It's just endless waiting under the rain in a haze of dust. WTF helps pass the time so fast. I laughed out loud a couple of times, which was not good as it gives away your position immediately. I just wanted you to know that your work reaches all the way over here and it's been an incredible source of emotional support for me. It's a mind-wrecking experience to be here during war. There isn't much to hold on to and they make you abandon and forget everything back home. Being forced to obey orders that you're ideologically and politically against takes a toll and drives you into an existential crisis and frustration. So I guess I wanted to say thank you. Anxiously waiting for new episodes here. Cheers. How, how could I know that, I, you know, it's just, it's amazing. I, and I get so many emails and I know you're all doing what you got to do or what you want to do. And I'm, I'm happy that you're enjoying the show. I seriously am. Today on the show, I got a up front. We're going to go with a, a little conversation I have with Cliff Nesteroff, the Cliff Nesteroff. I introduced you to Cliff Nesteroff a few years ago. He's a, uh, a writer. He writes about show business. He's one of my favorite show business writers. And now he has a book out called The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy. And it's a great book. When I talked to Cliff, I had not read the book, but I know Cliff and I know his writing and I've read a lot of his writing and uh, I'm, and now I'm in the book. I'm reading it. Spectacular. But if this is a, a, a history of comedy, it's a history written by the losers. It's a, it's a deep, dark history of a showbiz that you may not know and about influences on contemporary comedy and, and, and uh, show business in general that you may not be aware of. It's a, it's a beautiful book about beautiful losers and a few winners, and nobody has a prose style quite like Cliff's. And uh, Cliff and I will talk in a bit, and then after that, I had a, a, a relatively short conversation for, uh, our, for our show here with uh, Gloria Steinem. Uh, she's got her book out called My Life on the Road. It's available now. And uh, we kind of talked about that almost exclusively. We're tight on time, man. Sometimes people come over here and they're tight on time. But uh, we'll get into those talks in a minute. Let's just let's kind of like regroup together. Let's take a beat and and uh, let's let's process what's happened to us. OK, uh, we are all home for Thanksgiving. Perhaps some of you not home. Perhaps some of you with friends. Perhaps some of you doing that first thanksgiving away from family and try to make that okay perhaps some of you had people over that included family but i will say this got out in a nick of fucking time got out just under the wire all that stuff i said to you the monday before thanksgiving i honored the best i could myself i respected the fragility of uh of my mother and her boyfriend and and i tried to uh to be tolerant and as loving as possible which doesn't come that easy to me i i hugged my mother a couple times and i patted her on the back once 
and I said nice things to her. It was not as easy as it should be. Uh, I tolerated her boyfriend, John, who is um, ab- above and far, like probably, you know, and I say this with a certain amount of uh, humor, but uh, arguably the most annoying man I've ever met in my life. And uh, and I say that, you know, with respect in, in a degree. I understand he come from a comes from a different time where people needed to talk constantly. I think there must have been a time. He keeps he refers to this time a lot. This, uh, you know, back in the day. And I'm starting to assume that back in the day, people had a higher tolerance for people that just uh, didn't listen and can't shut up. I, I don't know. But maybe there was a different time where that was <laughs> where, where everybody was just competing to be heard, uh, you know, in, in real time with no social networking. Just just a lot of men in hats talking quickly. Uh, and probably about nothing, some self-celebratory uh, diatribe or rant or glorification of their place in the world. And then there was very little listening and there was a lot of deals negotiated. I think I think that there was a time in America where the only time that men stopped talking about themselves was to sell whatever wares they were involved in selling or talking to their boss or listening. Perhaps that was the only time they listened. I don't know. I didn't live in that time. Pow! Look out. Just coffee.coop is where that comes from. Yep, I did just shit my pants. So now, I guess what I'm saying is, I hope everything went well with you, and uh, and I hope you're okay, and I hope you're easing back into eating properly. Okay? So Cliff Nesteroff, did I tell you that story about Shecky Green? This is a great story. This is one of the first encounters I had with Cliff because I appreciated his writing when he wrote for the uh, uh, the WFMU uh, blog. And now I appreciate his wonderful book, The Comedians. But I appreciated him so much I had him on the show because I wanted to talk comedy with him. He's a, he, he's, a, he's a great active mind. But one of the first encounters I had, I'd read an article he wrote on the WFMU blog thing about Shecky Green. It was this great article about, you know, his depression, his drinking, his driving the his car into the fountain at Caesars. The, there was a gun, some gunplay, almost gunplay, and Buddy Hackett was involved. And, you know, just the, the whole portrait, the whole dark portrait of Shecky Green. And I had read that, and it reminded me that I wanted to interview Shecky Green. I may have told this story, but most of you haven't heard it. It reminded me that I'd reached out to Shecky Green once before. I'd reached out, I'd written an email to a website that looked like it hadn't been visited in decades, like one of the original websites, SheckyGreen.com maybe, and I emailed the contact. I said, look, I do a radio show kind of thing. I want to interview Shecky. Is there any possible way I can do that? I, I would come to him. So like weeks later, I get a, an email back. Shecky's interested. This is his cell phone number. Don't tell anybody. Like, you know, there's a premium on Shecky Green's cell phone number. So I kind of put it in the back of my head and I'd forgotten about it. And then I read Cliff's piece about Shecky and it reminded me that I need to get in touch with Shecky that I had this phone number. So I call this phone number. I go, hi, this is Mark Marin. I'd written to Shecky Green. Is this Shecky Green I'd written about doing an interview with Shecky? And on the other end, this guy goes, no more interviews. I'm not writing any, I'm not doing any more fucking interviews. I'm like, excuse me. He's like, did you write that piece? And I'm like, uh, yeah, no, I didn't write. He's like, I, why the hell do they got, they, they, nobody says anything about the charities, about the good stuff. I don't know where the hell he got his his stories, his information. Where the hell did he get that shit? I'm not doing any more interviews. Horrible conversation I had. So I email this contact to Cliff and I say, look, you know, I I just talked to, uh, to Shecky Green and I think he's referring to your piece. 
He, he wants to know where the hell you got your information. Where'd you get those stories? And within an hour, Cliff writes back, he told me. It's very funny. <laughs> and that was my first experience with Cliff. And then I met him in Vancouver. And, uh, and then I had him on the show. And the rest is history. Uh, this is my conversation with Cliff about the release of his new book, The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy. Uh, it's available now. It's a beautiful book. So here's me and Cliff Nesteroff. Cliff. Hey. Nesteroff. Hey. What, it, it seems just a few years ago, you were just a guy writing a blog that barely anybody read. Yes. And, uh, and, and I met you up in Vancouver. Yes. And we established who you were, and we had you on this show. A comic that quit doing it. The last time I saw you, you were riding around uh, your bike, and you're like, ah, I kind of wish I was doing comedy. Well, I still have that uh, that impulse, that inclination. Yeah. But no. now that I'm on this uh, uh, publicity blitz for the book, I get that gratification without having to do an act. Yeah. And everybody expects the author historian to be really boring. Uh huh. So I generally like kill because it, people ex- assume a dullard. <laughs> Who can't speak into a microphone is up there, and then I go up there and I tell things that are only like half funny, and they get a huge laugh. So it's a very to, gratifying you to know? book audiences. So you're killing with book audiences, killing with book audiences, and plus I'm getting more press than everybody I know uh, uh, who did stand up at my level. So that's kind of cool. Well, yeah, you won somehow. I won, and in Canada, there's yeah. this weird. Uh, 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 obsession with people that come to America and get press in America, yeah. and then suddenly in Canada, then they want to give you press, but yeah. only then. So now I'm getting all this Canadian press too. So it's kind of uh, kind of fun, and I keep getting asked about my stand-up act uh, from Canadian press. But when I was doing stand-up in Canada, nobody ever was well, interested you, in talking about. But that. But you were so. doing a shtick, right? You were doing the uh, the a character. I was doing two shticks. I was doing the character. Which was like an, an old comic character. Old comic character, and that shtick was popular. Yeah. And then I was doing my other shtick, which was me in my own voice, and nobody liked it. Yeah. So it was a weird uh, So thing. you found your voice in this writing business because, like, uh, and I'm, I'm thrilled that you uh, cited me in the book. I was happy to blurb the book, The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy, because I think that, that one thing people who, uh, who read the book and people who who have whatever expectations they may have on you, you have a morbid and, and I would say darkly perverse fascination with the parts of show business that, that get glossed over. Darkly perverse, not just perverse, but darkly perverse. Well, I think that is just uh, uh, inherently what's interesting about it, you know? And when I wrote this uh, uh, book, I think what uh, separates it from other history books, a lot of historians think they need to include every single detail right. in a linear, chronological fashion. Right. You know, a Bob Hope biography will talk about his contract negotiations in 1939. He asked for 25000 They only gave him 20000 Who cares? Nobody cares, you know? Yeah. So with this book, I cut out all the shit that I thought was boring yeah. and kept all the stuff I thought was interesting. And so some things that may be considered by some people uh, uh, more historically important may not be in there. Right. But things that are less important but more interesting, like, say, Albert Brooks's comedian father dying on stage, that's in there because that's an interesting story. But in the grand scheme, his father, Harry Einstein, is maybe not the most famous or influential comedian. But you're able to find those guys that were pivotal that nobody really knows about. 
I mean, there's a lot of cats that you write about that, you know, who the hell is that guy? And also, you're able to track the roots of modern comedy. I mean, obviously, they could go further back, but I mean, Vaudeville's pretty far back, yeah. and that's really where it starts. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, they asked me, the publisher, yeah. Gro- Grove Press, which yeah. is one of the all-time legendary uh, subversive publishers who published Naked Lunch, Tropic yeah. of Cancer, won all the censorship battles during the Beat Generation, and I'm thrilled to be with them. Um, they asked me if I would write a history of comedy that went back further to the days of vaudeville. And I had pitched a book about comedians and the mafia because yeah. I thought that was kind of the thing. Well, that's that had... from that one story, right? That's right. The Alan Drake story. How many pages did you did you give them? How many did you write? Uh, it's about 400 pages. This is about 400 yeah, pages. But yeah. this is, what, a half of what you wrote? Three quarters of what you wrote? Oh, yeah. We cut out a ton. Yeah, of course. Now, what are some of the things that, why were certain things cut out? You just couldn't make a book that big? Mostly it was for uh, purposes of space, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of the stuff was uh, cut out for flow. You yeah. know, the narrative had to move uh, quickly. I don't like boring books, so I wanted to make sure it's a... Uh, uh, now, if you were to go up a certain pace, if you were to go beat for beat with the with the personalities that led us to where we are now, because you go from vaudeville to now, yes, you know what is it? Could you could you sort of skip a rock through the people that you think that we arrived where we are now? Well, I don't know if I could skip a rock with the people. I sort of can, but it's yeah. more about uh, uh, the mediums. Yeah. you know, so it starts with vaudeville, right? And I only really talk about the people that you would still know today: W. C. Fields, the Marx Brothers. Bob Hope, Jack Benny, who's even forgotten now, Milton Berle, the people that became the giants in the next generation or who I talk about right. in that first generation. And much of the book chronicles people's careers right before they become famous. So there's lots in the book about Larry David, but the Larry David stuff ends in 1980. Right. And there's lots in there about Lorne Michaels, but it ends in 1974. So I kind of chronicle all the stuff that we don't know about, but really one of the themes of the book is struggle. So it's all about these people struggling and failing and making comments about how they're never going to make it and they should kill themselves because <laughs> because that is kind of something that we can all relate to, right? Or is it just me that can relate well, to Well, I, I certainly a comic can relate to it. Let's talk about Jackie Gleason because like, he's one of these guys that's sort of reputed to be this, this had an amazing appetite. For all things, you know, fun. Right, right. Where, where did like where did he start, and what was his darkness? Jackie Gleason is interesting. His early career is interesting because he was managed by this guy named Willie Weber. Yeah. Willie Weber was the grandfather of Stephen Weber from Wings. Really? Yeah. And <laughs> Willie Weber was also Don Rickles's first manager. Willie Weber had a reputation for taking on any comedian that nobody else would handle because Uh they were shit. Uh So he handled Don Rickles at his start, Jackie Gleason at his start, and a bunch of obscure guys that nobody would know. This guy, Mickey Shaughnessy, who was a Philadelphia stand-up comic who played police officers in movies all the time. This guy, uh, Pat Henry, who was like a Stephen Eady opening act. But he handled Don Rickles early on and Jackie Gleason early on. Jackie Gleason was considered a terrible stand-up comic, but he got booked at this place called the Club 18 in New York, which I write about in my book. In those days, if you were an insult comic, yeah. it was very dangerous because most of these clubs were owned by the mafia. Right. So if you insulted the wrong person, you could get hurt. So Jackie Gleason got booked at this place called the Club 18. Yeah. And the Club 18 was an insult club owned by comedians. And its whole purpose was so that insult comedians could go and perform freely without fear of getting murdered. Was it popular? It was very popular. It was the early 40s in New York on 52nd Street, which was known as Jazz Street, where all the jazz clubs were. Uh-huh. Club 18. It had five uh, uh, insult comics roving the audience with wireless mics insulting everybody in the audience. And one of them was Gleason? And Gleason became a substitute comedian there when anybody else couldn't make it. They needed a fifth Who guy. Who were the other guys? Uh, Pat Harrington Sr. Uh-huh. 
uh, the father of the guy from One Day at a Time, uh, a guy named Vince Curran, a guy named Frankie Hires, uh, a guy named Jack White who uh-huh. started it. They're all very, very obscure. But Frankie Hires invented a catchphrase at Club 18. At the start of every show, he would go into the audience uh, preparing to insult everybody and say, and away we go! Yeah. Which might sound familiar <laughs> if you ever watched the Jackie Gleason show. Jackie Gleason stole that phrase and it became his catchphrase. That happens, huh? Yeah. And Frankie Hires became a, a broken destitute and Jackie Gleason didn't care. Um, but didn't help him at all. Not at all. Not at all. But I don't know that people, like, it's, it's, it's a weird thing. I mean, if that's all that guy had to go on. That's true. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You know, but it's it, it's it's interesting that there's always these 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 questionable compromises of the soul. At the same time, Jackie Gleason became a, a gazillionaire. He could have at least given him a a gig as a as a PA or something yeah, on his it, show. You know, just nothing. as a little handout. But no, nothing. No. Did you find that's a recurring theme? The sort of a weird heartlessness of people that uh, step over other people to become successful. Uh no, I didn't really find that as a theme, but theft. Yeah, definitely a theme. There's this is one of the more interesting sh- uh, stories about vaudeville. Uh, in 1916, there was a company union called the National uh, Variety Artists or Vaudeville Artists, which was to circumvent actual unions from entering yeah. uh, vaudeville. So the vaudeville moguls created this company union, uh, NVA, and they had a thing called the uh, Mater- Protected Material Act. Because everybody was saying, this guy's stealing my routine, this guy's stealing my routine. So it was the old thing, the old cliche about mailing a thing to yourself with a sure. date-stamped envelope. So they had this huge file at the NVA of every routine and joke in vaudeville that had been claimed by individuals. Now, at the end of the 20s, when the stock market crashed, vaudeville folded. Right. And the National uh, uh, Vaudeville Artists Union was no more, but those filing cabinets were still there. So this comedy team, Olsen and Johnson, who are yeah. best known for a movie called Hell's a Poppin', went and took all the material and claimed it as their own and then toured for the next 20 years on stolen material they had ripped off. And no of one called them on it? People called them on it, but there was no recourse. There was no way to uh, to prove it or defend it anymore. They took the material. Oh, and they my used, God. Yeah. I was under the impression that there was a time, like shortly after vaudeville, where guys would knew that they were doing the same bit. Well, in a way, I mean, the thing is that in those days, material was generic. Uh, yeah. It was written generically. You didn't write from your point of view. You told jokes like, did you hear the one about the sure, guy and the lady sure. walking down the street? Mm-hmm. So that's very easy to steal because it's not about you. In the 50s, when it was Lenny Bruce and Jonathan Winters and Mort Saul, then it became very difficult to steal because a guy like Norm Crosby or Jack Carter, if they're talking about Adlai Stevenson like Mord Saul, it's not going to work. It's not going to translate. They're not going to get laughs. Isn't it interesting that the two types of comedies, uh, the, the two types of comedy still coexist? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of a fascinating thing that, you know, you have point of view guys or message guys or guys that are willing to take those risks emotionally, but you're always going to have just the joke guys. And they, they, I think probably, what would you say? Would you say that they still do just as well or better? They probably did better. Financially, yeah. it's like today. Look at the top uh, uh, ranking comedians financially. The amount that they get paid, the level of fame, the level of adulation, does it equate to our favorite comedians? Not really, right? right you know, right. They're not pushing any boundaries. Not to say that a comedian has to push boundaries, but their voice, their point of view is is kind of like middle of the road. Sure. it's a Well, it's, it's entertainment product for the most people possible. I yeah. mean, that's a mainstream act. Yeah, yeah. If that's you, what you're trying to you do, gotta, I guess. You want to succeed in show business, you have to shoot for the middle. And also, like in the book, you sort of track, you know, um, the uh, the race records and also, you know, black comedy sort of from its beginning. Yeah, And, and the evolution of that of, from minstrelsy through... Uh, 
Who, here comes the judge. What's his? Why am I saying pygmy? Pygmy, yeah. You know, all the way through to Dick Gregory and Red Fox. Red Fox uh, figures uh, uh, all over my book. He's very, very important. One of the funniest guys that ever lived. I mean, he's still popular with a contingent, but it's mostly because of Sanford and Son reruns. He does not get the credit he deserves as a groundbreaker. And he had a club here in Hollywood. He was the first black club owner in uh, in Midtown Los Angeles, West Hollywood, Beverly Hills. The uh-huh. very first. He took over a club called the Slate Brothers Club, which is essential in the history uh, and trajectory of Lenny Bruce and Don Rickles. And Red Fox took it over in 67. Before, when it was the Slate Brothers Club, it's where uh, Lenny Bruce uh, got fired for using the phrase cocksucker on stage, where they pulled the plug on him. And it was the first night of this club, the Slate Brothers. It was on La Cienega. And Lenny Bruce uh, uh, was going to be the big star that they brought in. He'd already been arrested. So it was like a big news item to have this guy open yeah. the club. And so the club was full of celebrities who had come to see Lenny Bruce for the first time. But it was really loud that night. They wouldn't be quiet. He went up there and he, nobody could hear him. And he was furious. So he yeah. called them a bunch of cocksuckers. Everybody went quiet. And the Slate Brothers fired him. He had to do a late show that night at 10 p.m., at the same uh, club, but now they had no comedian and a lineup around the block with a celebrity clientele. So they got on the phone. They were looking for an emergency replacement. That week, his first time in Los Angeles, Don Rickles was doing no business at Hollywood and Vine at a club called Zardy's with a Z. It was a jazz club. Nobody was coming to see this guy, Don Rickles. So they phoned over there. They said, we need a comedian for 10 p.m. They said, oh, we'll, sh- we'll send you this kid who's uh, flew in from Miami, Don Rickles. <laughs> Don Rickles goes in at 10 p.m. The whole audience is celebrities, yeah. and he, he nails every single one of them with an insult. He becomes the biggest thing in Los yeah! Angeles. So Good story. Lenny Bruce saying cocksucker at the Slate Brothers Club made Don Rickles a entity here, and then he ended up in a Clark Gable movie because of that. That same venue is the club that Red Fox later bought. Red Fox uh, started stand-up in the late 40s. Uh, I'm doing a show soon where I'm going to be projecting some rare uh, uh, images and clips. One of them is a variety uh, piece I found uh, when I was researching the book. It's from 1949, and it says, uh, Friends always wondered how John Foxy Sanford could afford a Cadillac on his meager stand-up salary. They found out Tuesday night when he was busted with two pounds of marijuana at a Newark, Newark, New Jersey nightclub. So as early as the late 40s, Red Fox was kind of an underground, subversive guy. (laughs) And he was selling marijuana with Malcolm X before either of them were famous around Harlem. They would break in at night to this dry cleaner's place and steal the suits and then sell the suits the next day on the roof of this building for a cut-rate price. You know, he was always a sort of uh, 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 hustler, hustler, uh, subversive guy. And then throughout the 50s, I mean, he had performed in a comedy team with Slappy White, a guy named Johnny Otis, who's very important to rhythm and blues in Los Angeles, took Red Fox under his wing, let him rap all night long on his late night radio station. But the big uh, and first important historical distinction for Red Fox happened in 1956. A guy named Dootsy Williams, who was a doo-wop mogul here in Los Angeles, who had made a lot of money with a hit song called Earth Angel by the Penguins, was putting out all this rhythm and blues and, uh, and doo-wop music, all this great black music. What is it? Earth Angel, Earth yeah. Angel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he saw Red Fox at a place called the Oasis Club in South Central Los Angeles. He said, Red... I'd like to record your act and put it out as an album. And Red Fox was like, you're crazy because then people won't come and see my act. They'll own it. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And he said, well, I can give you 500 bucks. And Red Fox said, get out of here. 
two days later, uh, Red Fox was broke, and he shows up at uh, Dootsie Williams' office, and he says, hey, man, what are we talking about uh, recording that record? Yeah. So they recorded the record, and it was a weird novelty in 1956, a stand-up comedy record. It had never been done before. And this was the first party record. It was the first party record. It was the first stand-up record, period. Really? Really. Ever. Ever. Before that, there were novelty songs by Stan Freeberg, Spike Jones. There had been radio shows on 78. Uh, there had been like talk sing kind yeah. of routines with music in the background, Burt Williams, 78s. But nobody had just recorded their stand-up act. So Red Fox did that in 1956. It became a huge underground hit with, uh, with black record buyers. But because it was the black market, places like Dolphin Records in South Central Los Angeles, the mainstream uh, white record publications like Billboard and Cashbox ignored it, and they didn't track the sales. But Dootsie Williams knew how much we're selling, so they recorded another one and another one and another what one. What is there, like 10? Before any white comedian put out a comedy record, Red Fox put out 10 LPs and four EPs, 14 releases bef- between 56 and 58. And then Mort Saul put one out in 58. Shelley Berman put one out in 59. And when you talk to those guys, Mort Saul would be like, I was the first guy to do a comedy Well, he was record. the first guy to do everything according to him. Yeah, according to him. And so all these white comedians through history have taken credit for the comedy record boom that came in the early 60s, which you still find in every thrift store yeah, and record yeah, yeah. store. But Red Fox is the reason. Uh, his record sold so well that Capital, Decca, Verve, they saw that and they're like, we got to get in on this. And they started recording comedians and it created this huge craze. But Red Fox, 14 records released, big sellers before anybody else. And I think it's it's also like, I think people forget just how, how much comedy records sold. I mean, some of them sold a lot. Well, they were big fucking money, man. Well, the famous one is The First Family by Von Meter, yeah. which to this day you still see in every antique store, every junk store, every record store. It's worthless. But when it came out in uh, in 61, uh, it was the best-selling record of all time. Did not end well for Von Meter. It wasn't the best-selling comedy record, the best-selling record of all time. And that Von was Meter. about the JFK. It was about JFK fa- uh, and his family. Yeah. And uh, and actually, Von Meter is how I got into this shit, because his story is insane. It's a movie. It's so crazy. But the beats are what? He does the huge record, and then Kennedy gets assassinated, and well, he's sort of left without an angle. Well, he wasn't even really much of a comedian to begin with, yeah. but he was from New England. He looked a little bit like JFK. They had the same haircut. And so he was uh, uh, kind of recruited by these disc jockeys who said, let's do a JFK spoof on record. Yeah. And so he was. It became a huge sensation. They sent him on a countrywide tour, but it was like sending an amateur comic on a countrywide tour and booking him in Carnegie Hall. So I found a review of his Carnegie Hall appearance, yeah. and the headline is, Meter Bombs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the only positive thing they say is that his opening act, Stanley Myron Handelman, was hilarious. Who's that? Who'd that turn out to be? He ended up being a writer for uh, Rodney Dangerfield uh-huh. and was on Johnny Carson in the 70s a million times. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, so Von Meter kind of bombed. Then JFK dies. And now he has no act because his whole act was just impersonating JFK. He had this record that sold six million copies. Uh, after the assassination, Cadence Records, who put it out, uh, sent out a nationwide recall. All the LPs were recalled, and all of Von Meter's engagements were canceled. He was canceled off the Joey. Bishop he lived show. a long time, though. He didn't. He, he didn't die till two thousand something. He didn't die right? till two thousand. So what happened was he tried to reinvent himself. Nobody wanted it. Nobody liked it. He did another record for Verve. He did two other ones for Verve. Actually, one was like a Christian themed one. He started doing a lot of acid, a lot of peyote. He used to buy his LSD off Paul Krasner in the late sixties. Yeah. Um, he started wandering the desert. He became a born again Christian and reinvented himself as a country and western barroom piano player in Maine hmm. and then died. 
But uh, okay, so that's the story. <laughs> that was your portal in to what the type of stories that fascinate you about comedy. Well, because I used to go to thrift stores and I would find these records by guys like Von Meter, and I go, "Who the fuck is this guy? And why is he in every record store? Because I've never heard of him, never seen him on TV." Never seen him in a but, I, but I've never quite, but, but still, there's this sort of, I, I don't know if it's a morbid fascination, but in the same way that I'm, I'm amazed, you know, like I am captivated and enthralled by, by Drew Friedman's work. Right. Uh, I am, I'm sort of, you know, I, I've sort of had a long kind of fascination with, um, with human anomalies of sorts, you know, circus freaks and, right, and right, that right. kind of stuff, that there's something about going into the comedy store and you feel a ghost of something. There's a, there's an electricity that seems to be, uh, have a history to it and it's a dark electricity that not everybody's sensitive to it. Have you ever been able to really track that in your psyche, what that is, what that, the compulsion to, to being part of that or to, or to, to look into it is? Uh, my compulsion to look into it? Well, I mean, I'm trying to find out what mine is. I like being part of it, and I like the idea. I can't quite put my, my finger on because it's not evil, but it's it's sort of a darkness of the human spirit that, that is at the core of, of some of the most you know profoundly entertaining and significant comedy that we like. There's something like when I was a kid, I had pictures of, of, of entertainers. They have tabloid pictures of people I didn't even know, like Fatty Arbuckle. Like, you know, it goes back to that, that they're... There's something I I can't quite grasp what it is the vulnerability and the 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 weird compulsions of people that that are entertainers you know in their private lives is is morbidly fascinating. Well, there's something very unnatural about it. So it's it's probably even more fascinating for people who don't do it because they cannot imagine going up on stage. To me, I I don't I have trouble relating to people who say they would never want to go on a stage and or that their biggest fear is going in front of an audience. I'm like, well, what's what's the big deal? Like, what's wrong with you? Why would you not right. want to be the uh, center of attention? Name some of the names of the people that you talked to for this book. How many were there? Uh, I think we rounded yeah. to 200 for the, uh, for the press release. Uh-huh. Um, but, I mean, I talked to everybody. And even over the course of the book, it was interesting. There's some people I didn't interview officially for the book but i got to spend time with like mel brooks yeah albert brooks fred willard um but yeah about 200 people a lot of them are very uh, obscure a lot of them you know for different uh, uh generations obviously it's easier for the more current people because they're all alive i talked to everybody who was still alive basically from the 40s and 50s uh like professor erwin corey uh people of that uh, uh, ilk and then moving into more modern generations people like Richard Lewis I talked to way too many uh, comedy store uh, uh, people from the 70s yeah there's only so many Argus Hamilton yeah. anecdotes one needs yeah. you know but yeah. it's a huge book it gets into the nitty gritty we talk about uh, stories that have not previously been told before how Jack Benny was accused of plagiarism in his early years and to circumvent the plagiar plagiarism accusations he did some interesting things he changed his name to jack benny by uh, for one his name change was because uh, he was tainted with these uh, accusations of joke thievery and uh, furthermore when he was accused of stealing from certain comedians what he did was he hired those comedians as writers huh. to write for him and he became jack benny so a lot of kind of hidden history about our comedy heroes is in this book about how milton burl dressing up in drag on the texaco star theater was inspired by the gay clubs that he frequented and studied the drag queens while at the same time a lot of comedians like this guy ray bourbon who was a gay comic uh was getting arrested for dressing as a woman milton burl was on the cover of time magazine for dressing like a woman so there's a lot of hidden history in there guess it depends on the venue 
I it well not not only that it depends on uh, on your status within the business. Ray Bourbon was very obscure, and he would dress in drag. He'd go up on stage, talk about being gay, and he would get busted for obscenity simply for saying that he was gay. Um, and one of the things he was thrown in jail for was the charge. This was a crime in Los Angeles in the early fifties. He was charged with impersonating a woman. Hmm. and thrown in prison for a month. Milton Berle was impersonating a woman and became the most popular- And uh, loved entertainer yeah, yeah, in show business. Yeah, so well, great job, that. Cliff. Thank you very you much, You fucking Mark did Mark. it, man. Thank you, man. That guy's a, he's a thinker. He's a talker. He's a historian. The Comedians, Drunk Thieves, Scoundrels in the History of American Comedy. It's available now wherever you get books. Be a great gift for comedy fans. So now let's get into, this is a very interesting show, Diverse. Gloria Steinem, as a cultural icon and as a, as somebody who I remember from my childhood, because Ms. Magazine happened when in the early 70s, right, mid-70s. I just remember her on television, on the news, on magazines. When I was a kid, she she... She made an impression on my brain. I'm not sure I knew exactly uh, what that was about, but I remember when Ms. Magazine first uh, appeared. I remember the Shirley Chisholm uh, candidacy and her on the cover. I remember a lot of these things from, you know, the stuff that was pouring into my brain because I always gravitated towards, you know, counterculture and, and exciting stuff. Uh, you know, I didn't know why, but that was where I wanted to live. So I remembered her from that. Uh, she came over here to the house and uh, we had uh, less than an hour. And I thought it uh, savvy, maybe. Is that the word? Do I want to call myself savvy and smart to sort of focus uh, on the book, that, that, which is called My Life on the Road? It's available now, and you'll, you'll, you'll hear her tell me. She doesn't consider this a memoir. Uh, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, but I, I decided to, to keep it focused on the book because yeah, we were, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, she's had a big life. And there's a lot of things to talk to Gloria Steinem about. And I had less than an hour and I thought it was good. And now uh, let's go to my conversation with the amazing Gloria Steinem. It's crazy. I mean, you've met presidents. Yeah. It's, uh, it's intense when you meet them because they're, you bring so much to it. In terms of your perception of them, mm -hmm. but then there's something slightly um, after the excitement. There's there's not a disappointment, but there's a realization that they're just people. It's a person, yeah, <laughs> that's which, which is the good news. Yeah, yeah it is yeah, the good news. Right, right. Um, so, you know, I was born in '63, so in 1972, uh, when I guess Ms. Magazine started. You were, in my mind, like all of that stuff in the late 60s and the early 70s was just stuff on newsstands and stuff on TV. I remember my mother bringing me to a McGovern rally in Albuquerque. I, and I remember seeing your face. I remember the cover of the first Ms. Magazine. So it was all coming in. And I knew it was a world I wanted to be involved in. But I was, you know, nine. <laughs> but at nine, you're as smart as you're ever going to get. Is that true? Do I you think so. Yeah. I think so, too. You do gravitate towards something. You know, you feel something. Yeah, I think you're already who you're going to be. I, I, give or take, right? I guess you can meet obstacles, but you know, hopefully you evolve a little bit. I'm trying not to be emotionally nine at 52. <laughs> but, uh, but like when I read the book and I realized just I, I was embarrassed at because I come from a generation uh, in the middle there, that I, I missed most of the 60s. 
that it was all just sort of bits and pieces. It was images. I saw Nixon on television. I knew he was bad. But uh, but I, I missed all of it. I'm reading your book, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm a moron. Like, how am I not educated enough to even know this fairly contemporary history? No, you, you don't need to know all that. You have uh, instincts that will tell you what is bullshit and right. what isn't, right? Sure. And and that will work when you read history. It will work when you're living in the present. Yeah. It, and it's okay. It is okay? Yeah. Because like there there is part of me that, uh, you, you know, when, when uh, like, when you wrote this book, I mean, after, you know, having written as much as you have and having uh, represented feminism for as long as you have, was this book a way to sort of frame your entire life's work uh, around a memoir in a way mm-hmm. to, to sort of... No, it's it's not a memoir. It's a road book. Okay. I think it's two different things. Okay. What's the difference? Uh, it's not all that... I'm not talking about love affairs, marriages. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> because they didn't happen on the road. Right. right? So I'm... Did I'm, you write that book? Uh, I have occasionally put, <laughs> put, put uh, yes, right, no, I have. And the the reason my father is there is because he was such a gypsy and a traveler and probably, you know, gave me my tolerance for insecurity that is very helpful. And also the, a spirit of adventure and, and looking towards the new and, and having a certain amount of optimism. Yes, absolutely. But if you think about it, would Jack Kerouac have called his book a memoir? I don't know, but like, it's probably not. But I mean, but there seem to be moments like there. You seem to use experiences that you sort of went back to in your life as pivotal moments in in sort of constructing the way you saw the world, and and you know, in looking back at your father's career or 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 lack thereof, you were able to identify him in in a positive way, identify with him, and see your own spirit within it. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. I I really was harking back to what felt re- relevant to what I was saying about the road. So my falling in love with political campaigning yeah. had a lot to do with my mother's uh, habit of, of getting tears in her eyes whenever she heard the word Roosevelt. And, but you remember Roosevelt. I kind of, just just very the little. The impact I mean, of it. Yeah, I remember it through her words, and I remember Eleanor, of course, after the the death of Roosevelt. Yes. Right. And and you're because when I as I read this book, I realized it, it's not about feminism. It's about democracy. It's about America. It's about people. But wait it's a minute. A, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. You can't have democracy without feminism. Think okay. about it. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But so like, it's really all the same subject. Well, that, well that's what like because I come to the book, you know, being, you know, someone who, who, who knows of you through some writing, but mostly through what you represent. But when reading the book, it is fundamentally about struggle and about people and about democracy working. Mm-hmm. And I, yes, agreed, you can't have democracy without yeah, feminism. Yeah, like you can't have it with racism and you can't right, have Exactly. It. Yeah, right. But, but initially, I, I think what it, it seems to me compelled you was the struggle of people. Y- yes, it was understanding, how shall I say, was understanding that... I wasn't less important than anyone else, but I right. wasn't more important either. Right. Um, it was very helpful to live in India for a while because that was suffused with that kind of spirit. It was only a decade or so after the independence of India. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So I I realized that movements from the bottom up were possible. Right. Right. And you didn't see it in America. 
Really? I, that there was a, a, a I lack wasn't, of... I'm sure, uh, obviously it existed here. Yeah. But, but I, <laughs> it wasn't uh, available to me. I thought you had to fit into the current hierarchy. Right, which was, uh, the, the, what, what did you see that as then, the current hierarchy? Uh, well, in my terms, yeah. if, or those terms that were addressed to me, yeah. it meant that uh, I would go to college and get educated in order to be an educated mother, and I would marry, and my life from that time on would be decided by the needs of my husband and children. It not not that uh, a husband and I might uh, state our needs equally. Right. No, <laughs> that didn't exist. <laughs> no. Well, it probably existed, but it wasn't in the culture, and I didn't hear it. But isn't it, the the power of of that uh, of you know the I guess would be a patriarchal system, but also just what, what was taken for granted as the middle class at that time was so was so limited, and it's hard for me to even picture. You know, just because I grew up in a different time, that it was it was rarely questioned, and and that was what you were up against. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's still with us in in ways. I mean, for instance, if a woman has children, yeah, it's harder for her to get a job because she is considered distracted. If a man has children, it's easier because he's considered responsible. The, these judgments are so deeply ingrained and and but when you like I think what was fascinating about the book and about your experience in India because what you like what was exactly the thing that sort of turned your mind in India about the power of co- of talking to people it, it was the complete accident of walking through an area called Ramnad which was then very uh, um, being destroyed by caste riots and I had gone to see the ashram of a of a man named Winoba Bhave, who was a disciple of Gandhi, who of course was no longer living. And it happened that because the riots were going on, they had sent teams walking through this area in order to say to the people, "We care about you. You know, this you're not abandoned by everyone outside." And they were fresh out of women. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so they needed a, a a woman to become part of this team. And I said, you know, isn't it kind of crazy that it's an American woman? And they said, you know, it wouldn't be any more odd if you came from New Delhi. Huh. So uh, there I was with a sari, a cup, and a comb, period. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Walking through villages, uh, being given uh, food and shelter by the villagers because as the um, Gandhi and I was with said, you know, if they if they want peace, they will support you and take care of you. And if they don't, there's nothing you can do anyway. Huh. So the the fact that like just having, you know, human interaction representation, you know, and, and also sort of moving through, you know, getting rid of, of, of the lies or, or the fear by telling people that things were going to be okay and that this is what was going on. No, you haven't well, been abandoned. Was, uh, they, they, people, of course, had taken shelter in their houses, in their compounds, in their huts. And so for them to come out at night and sit around a kerosene lamp and even talk to each other, uh, because it, it, the rumors are always or frequently even worse than the reality. Here too. <laughs> now. <laughs> I don't know. The reality is pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just to watch this process in which the point was that everybody got to tell their story, everybody listened, yeah, and came to some consensus, and that was more important than the time spent. 
Right, right, right. It, it was it, because you're engaged as well. They, I mean, you might not frame it that way. Like, you know, like this is going on a while or, you know, how do we get to the bottom yeah, of this? Yeah, there wasn't let's have a meeting for an hour. No, it was right. let's, ha- let's have a meeting and, and find out what's really happening and uh, support each other, help each other, confirm each other's reality. It was about the goal, not about the time. Right. Now, how much about you, you, you know, I know that your your relationship with your mother was was difficult because she had some mental illness, right? I don't think she had no. I, you know, even even when she was in a mental hospital, I asked the the doctors how they would uh, diagnose her, mm-hmm. and they said she had an anxiety neurosis, and I said, w- would that could you say her spirit was broken? And they said yes. You know, so it wasn't exactly what you would call something that's in the dictionary of right, uh, right, <laughs> right, like, like a, an yeah, actual I, depressive state, or, or yeah. it, it was something uh, environmental and internal that had to do with with sadness. Well, it, yeah, sadness. I mean, everything she loved that was her own, her own talent, uh-huh. uh, her own ability to tell her own story, to be a writer, to be a reporter had she had given up because she had had a nervous breakdown she couldn't make it all work together and then she had got hooked on early tranquilizers mm. that is there was something called sodium pentothal which was a very early that's a heavy tranquilizer. one yeah yeah and and were you able to identify when did you first sort of identify that you know, that she was you know heartbroken because of her inability to pursue her her own self um, what, how old were you when you sort of put that together? You know, it, 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 it took me a long time because we tend to just accept how our parents are as inevitable. And I had not been born yet when she was being a newspaper reporter and doing what she loved. So I, it wasn't until she came out of the hospital for the second time. And, well, really, when I was seeing her there and I suddenly realized how alike we were. Mm-hmm. And 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 I realized who she had been and who she still was inside. And did that when did you identify some of uh, common insecurities and fears that you knew you had to transcend or overcome? Uh, no, I think I was still, to be frank, I think I was still in the "I'm not going to be anything like my mother" phase, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and it, which causes us to. Uh, blame or at least attribute the problem to our parents because we don't don't want to admit it could happen to us too. Right. So I I I wasn't quite there yet. I mean right. I I now realize that it's quite true and if she had a a mental illness it was called patriarchy but you know, Right. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm just lucky that I'm able that it's diminished somewhat and that I'm able to you know have my own voice. Well, it is interesting, like in in terms of the timeline, that before, you know, the Vietnam War and before uh, all the um, the sort of progressive and 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 revolutionary activities and 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 activism of of that time. I mean, you were writing, you were writing magazine pieces. I mean, you saw this all unfold before you know, before the idea of feminism mm-hmm. really took hold. Well, I I was doing what I think we often do is that if we are in one somewhat marginalized group we identify with every other marginalized group right so i was working for cesar chavez and the farm workers as a volunteer 
I had, for instance, written a uh, long interview and a profile of James Baldwin because I was in love with his writing. Right. I didn't understand why exactly. I mean, you know, yeah. my part of it I didn't understand. I just knew I was magnetized by that. And and also with the with, with the struggle of, of of anybody who seemed, you know, misrepresented or or or, or actually oppressed. Yeah, I think even now people accuse me of being a foul weather friend. What does that mean? <laughs> that means that I'm right there in a crisis. <laughs> but when things are going well, I may be hard to find. <laughs> Why? How do you take that? <laughs> well, I recognize it. It's yeah. true. It's true. Do you, I think if things are going well, you know. You don't then, need me? Right, right. <laughs> Have to move on <laughs> right. to where there's crisis. No, I mean it's not quite that. Bad no, no, because but I like mean to, I love to dance and make jokes and yeah. you know, hang out and all of that, you know, which is all good stuff. Um, but but I have been accused of being a foul weather friend. <laughs> <laughs> but you need to go where the help is needed. That yeah. seems to be what yeah, you're compelled I th- I, by. I think also there were a lot of crises in my childhood, so I think I got into a kind of what they would now call crisis management. Isn't sure. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, when you deal with a, 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 a sort of uh, erratic, slightly irresponsible uh, father, uh, it's kind of, and you're traveling constantly and you have no home, I would imagine that there, there is a certain amount of, uh, of panic and, uh, and, and uh, someone has to be the grown up. Well, and also, I was his friend and his buddy, and part of being his friend and his buddy was, as a child, going to open the door instead of him in case it was a bill collector. I mean, I can rep- still, I think, recognize bill collectors. Right. Uh, or, and also, there were some con games going on that you yes, guys had sort of a racket going. Right. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and did you know, like, like you were, he was Jewish, right? Yes. Your father was. Were you brought up with any religion? Not what people would call a religion, probably, although my mother kept telling me uh, she tried to give me a Jewish identity. My father didn't care about it at all, Uh and my mother loved her mother-in-law, adored her mother-in-law, so she she kept telling me, against all evidence of my father, that Jewish men made better husbands. (laughs) (laughs) She's hanging on to the dream. Right. Um, Did you know your grandmother? Uh, just a little bit, yeah. and, and uh, only thanks to uh, feminist scholars who have done monographs about her have I come to realize. I mean, she died when I was about five. Uh-huh. That she w- what an important suffragist she was. Oh, really? So and you she, have it in your genes? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and and she had uh, founded the first vocational high school in Toledo, and she also was elected as a member of the school board, the first woman. Uh, to be so elected, which I realized she did in a very smart way because women were kept from voting because there were gangs of men and boys who would sec- what we now call sexually harass them uh-huh. when, when they went to the polls. Yeah. And she organized women to vote together. Aha. Uh-huh. Go and in so a pack? she won, yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> if there are a lot of you, they're not going to bother you. <laughs> right. And if they do bother you, you just keep moving. <laughs> right. Well that, well, that sort of became a, a theme of what you talk about in, in organizing as well. Yes, yeah, that, that with that, with the power of, of numbers and communication, that you you are sort of an unstoppable force. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not 100 percent unstoppable, <laughs> but you're less less you're less stoppable. Let's put it that way. I like how you're wary to be you know too too optimistic or or unrealistic. 
about about the about the fight. So, but your father never spoke of his mother in these ways, or you you had to wait until some. Uh... Yeah, no, you know, families brag about their uh, forebears in ways that are seen as admirable. Uh-huh. So I was told that it, how wonderful it was that my grandmother had four sons, that she kept a kosher table, uh-huh. uh, right? <laughs> that she was uh, an educator. That was good. Yeah, uh, but not that she ran for school board on a coalition ticket with the anarchists and the socialists. <laughs> that, that was not looked at in the family mythology. That was the downside. <clears throat> you know, I don't know. I huh. mean, it, well, I don't think it was concealed. It's just that it wasn't admired. Right. But it must have been a, a fairly, uh, I mean, I, I'd imagine your father had some memories of the kind of chaos of campaigning and being part of uh, that. Yeah, probably. But he, he was not. I mean, I think that my father was rebelling against the super... Uh, not conformity, certainly, but security mm-hmm. that his parents had provided because they were both immigrants. So it mattered to, to them a lot. But to my father, he was growing up in a completely quiet household with a ticking clock on the mantelpiece. Right. And he wanted adventure. You uh-huh. know? So he didn't care if he graduated from the university or not. He was running all the dances, running the humor magazine. Uh, right. You know, he was uh, for day to day adventure. And how did he influence? Do you think your 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 concept of of if 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 it, it, at all your concept of masculinity or what men were or or, or anything else? Well, you know, in retrospect, I yeah. realized I was very super hyper lucky in yeah. that way because he was really was a nurturing father, and he was patient, and he loved my company, and he treated me like a buddy. You know. Yeah. Uh, so I realized there were men who were kind and patient and treated you like a buddy. Right. You know? And right. some of them had places to live. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I think it. You know, I'm grateful to him. Yeah, no, right? I, I, I. It seems to me that you sort of uh, uh, attribute a lot of your your sort of spirit to to his uh, his, um, his right, compulsion that, that, to. And uh, I'm still friends with my old lovers. You know, who were wonderful human beings. Oh, really? It's probably all. Well, that's because you know, of him. Attributable huh? to him. Yeah. Well, I thought that letter in the book from uh, you know that kid who. Whose father was a doctor who knew your dad when when he passed was it's really touching. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were several points of the book where you know, like I don't know, I, I don't know if it's my age or what, but I get uh, weepy very easily. And there was like uh, even though like the the taxi drivers that you know your sort of uh, defense of uh, your lifestyle is really about you know having the experience of engaging with people uh, of all kinds, uh, you know, sort of spontaneously. And, you know, the stuff you learned from taxi drivers was like, those are great stories. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I realized uh, that I had to, and I, I have to say to you that it was only after I'd been working on the book for a while yeah. that I realized that since I was writing an on-the-road book, perhaps I had to explain that I didn't drive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how... how even, you... even though I later discovered that Jack Kerouac didn't... Right. Drive, well, he, either. We right. had Neil Cassidy. Did you have Neil Cassidy to drive you around? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, Who well, on, Neil on, Cassidy? on campuses, I had a lot of Neil Cassidy's to drive right, me. Right. Sure. Sure. Excited students. But the 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 reason I love the way I travel is because the moment I leave my door, the journey begins. Right. I'm not isolated in a car by myself. I'm taking the subway to take a train, or I'm getting in a taxi. You're immediately in. 
um, a communal situation. A taxi is really like somebody's house, mm-hmm. you know. They yeah. have their photographs up and so on, and you end up in conversation. So your your trip starts right away. Yeah, and w- but how do you travel? So do you, you don't take buses across country, though. Do you? Well, I have I have occasionally taken buses and certainly trains, mostly by by plane though. Right. And that has turned out to be great because the flight attendants are flying girlfriends. Right. Because because they have their own um, huge job <laughs> problems over time, and. They were organizing. In fact, they were the first group to take a discrimination case before the EEOC, um, the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, uh, because they uh, had to stop working at a certain age. They had to look a certain way. There was all kinds of... They were hypersexualized and objectified. And and, uh, men couldn't be hired as flight attendants as they now are. So they were getting activist and politicized at the same time that I was wandering around taking planes. So literally, I had flying girlfriends. Right. And also, you had those, those talk circles about issues that affected you know, people's wives and women's wives. Yes. And sometimes we, we had them in the galley, you know. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, one, and one woman said to me, leaving St. Louis, that she... Uh, had had Phyllis Schlafly on her flight, and she said, I put her in the middle seat. <laughs> Do you look at Phyllis Schlafly as a, your mortal enemy for life? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like, because there, like, there are these, uh, I have to assume that somebody who has been, uh, you know, your antagonist in a way for what, for decades. Mm-hmm. To, have you have you talked to her? Have you ever had a talk circle with Phyllis Schlafly? <laughs> no. <laughs> I I used to try to correct her facts, but she would just say thank you very much, and then go on saying the same thing. You know, I think that well, that's a standard in right wing uh, (laughs) uh, uh, ideology. You know, I I think that she was kind of selected to be the lead person against the Equal Rights Amendment because the right wing didn't have that many women. She actually was much more interested in in uh, military policy. Uh-huh. That had been her concern beforehand. But do you think that, um, you know, it, didn't it go for, for most of your life and it, her resistance or her being an opponent of uh, Equal Rights Amendment, how did you even, if you could have any empathy for her position, what the hell could it be? I mean, how could a woman think that way? Well, I th- I think if you have a system with pretty clear differences in power, right. then you create a situation in which to sell out your group that is the less powerful one will get you favors from the more powerful. And that's just the way it is. You know, so there are always going to be shill. some people who, who look like you and behave like them. Right. Uh, and there's also internalized oppression, as psychologists say. You know, mm-hmm. it's possible that you really believe what you've been told all your life, that your group is slightly less than dependent on... Well, that's uh, an interesting moment in the book about the, the, the black man who saw the black pilot and had a moment of like, oh, well, how, why is he? Yeah, <laughs> is that going to be all right? Can he do that? Yeah, no. I mean, because if we do what we see, way more than what we're told. Uh-huh. So if we too have grown up in a world in which we haven't seen people who look like us, if the us is the less powerful group, right. in positions of control or power, and we too come to doubt whether you know it's really possible should. Uh, 
you know, maybe maybe we should go to a it's white a, doctor or a male right. doctor or right. The brainwashing is is, is yeah, sort we're, of deep. We're, we're subject to it too. But yeah. with Shafley, it was a power thing. I mean, you know, she, you know, she right. She she catered to favors and and maintaining power within her party, and that was that. I think so. Although um, apparently, after I'm trying to think what election it was, I think. She'd been very instrumental in electing Reagan, and they still didn't give her a job in the administration. I felt kind of sorry for her, actually. Really? (laughs) (laughs) She'd made all those... I mean, if if you're going to sell out, you might as well get something. Sold out your entire gender. (laughs) You you might as well at least get to sit with with the president if you... Yeah. That's that's uh, and so but, but also I, I have to say that that she was much more the window dressing if you're thinking right. about the sure. defeat of the Equal Rights Amendment, it was way more defeated by the insurance industry because the insurance industry is uh, one of the very few, maybe the last big, big, big industry that is governed and regulated by state legislatures, not by the federal government. Right, and therefore they're very deep into state legislatures. Um, in fact, at one point in the ERA struggle, I noticed that the most frequent uh, occupation of a state legislature was insurance agent, and they didn't want to uh, take sex out of their actuarial tables, which they would have had to do. Because that would have uh, it would have cost them a lot of money, right? So, so even now, even even though thanks to Obamacare, there's been some small regulation of the insurance industry. Uh, if you are a woman who doesn't smoke, you may still pay more premium, higher premium than a man who does smoke on the theory that you live longer. Interesting. It's uh, it, Insurance is a, is a very sort of evil sort of business. Yeah, no, it is. I, <laughs> a very powerful lobby, but a very right. evil business because they're in the business of making money, not helping people. Uh, like they're they're playing the odds against you. Yeah, well, they're they're trying to. Well, we understand, <laughs> yeah, but but sure. I I I think uh, <laughs> part of the reason I came to believe we didn't have the democracy I thought we had. Yeah, was that in the state legislatures and including in you know in every state the Equal Rights Amendment had the majority support and majority right. know, opinion. Nonetheless, we would lose because of the economic interests in the state legislatures. But it seems that you you do still have a faith in the power of the of the electorate of of people. No, I do. I do. It takes a lot of organizing. It's not easy to on the ground defeat big money, but you can do it. The voting booth is right. actually the last place, or the only place I can think of anyway, yeah. where the least powerful and the most powerful are equal. Right, and it, and it, and it is a private decision. That that's what I I, I like. I was talking to somebody about that about. The size of, because uh, I talked to Michael Moore about the the number of women who are going to be voting, and he was talking specifically about that. And I was talking to some friends who were sort of cynical about it, uh, about you know the wives of conservatives or the wives or the women who are in you know Christian organizations or whatever. But you don't know what they're going to vote when mm-hmm. they go in there. They don't have to tell. No, that's what... true. That's true. And actually, I, I once met a woman who told me that she was so tired of her husband canceling out her vote every year that she locked him in the bathroom. And so he couldn't vote? <laughs> right. Voters With fresh. food. She put food in there, locked him in the bathroom. <laughs> oh, that's a very... very uh, that's, that's only one such woman. <laughs> right. Very very intimate voter suppression. <laughs> well, can we talk a little bit about uh, some history in, in, in the evolution of, of of modern feminism that, you know, you were instrumental in and how it sort of 
came out of the 60s and mm-hmm. what was going on in the late 60s that created the environment for for um, activism to really take hold in this country. When did it start for you, where you started to realize that your agenda was what it was? Mm-hmm. Well, there there was a very important uh, part of the movement that came along a, a little bit earlier, say in the mid or early 60s, uh-huh. because of The Feminine Mystique, which was written by Betty Friedan, talking about women who were college-educated uh, white women living in the suburbs and uh, just not using their talents and right. had a right to be in the labor force. Right. I thought that was absolutely true. I just didn't think it applied to me because I was already in the labor force and not getting paid <laughs> equally. <and so. laughs> right, right. <clears throat> so for me, it was more the women who had been in or still were in the civil rights movement or in the anti-war movement uh, and loved those movements with all of our hearts, but right. still were not making policy, but coffee instead, you know. So. Right. But still at that time, you know, the, the I guess it would be the, the left in terms of, you know, the fight against the Vietnam War, raising awareness of the the injustice of that war and and the sort of momentum of the civil rights movement. At some point, uh, I imagine you, you were sitting with in a talk circle with other women and said, uh, well, I mean, we've got to make be specific about this. Mm-hmm. And there it must just, have been some resistance from the left. Uh, in yes. The- no, there, there was. I mean, at, at the time, it just seemed to us that we needed an additional movement. Right. Um, but to to some guys on the left, they felt we were being divisive because that we were bringing up the subject of women's equality, which they didn't take seriously. So and then they was, asked you to go get their coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's there's a uh, a brilliant essay by Robin Morgan called "Goodbye to All That," in which she says goodbye to the left. Uh huh. You know. Good, oh, really? Yeah. Good goodbye to men who are. Uh, rebelling for the moment and then going back to their father's business. Goodbye to, I don't know. I mean, it's wonderfully wow. funny and when was sharp. That, when was that written? Um, oh, gosh, I'd have to, at the very end of the 60s. Right, and you, but you wrote a piece in 69 uh, called After Black Power, Women's Liberation. And that, that that specifically speak to, you know, the momentum that had come through activism now had to be applied directly to, to the issues of equal rights. Yes, and also in in my own life experience, it was because I had gone to cover a hearing held in a church basement downtown in Manhattan by women who were uh, protesting a state legislative hearing on liberalizing abortion laws. This was before uh, Roe v. Wade, before the Supreme Court ruling. So the uh, legislature in Albany was supposed to decide trying to decide whether to liberalize abortion laws. And they had invited 14 men and one nun to testify. So <laughs> so these Fixed. you know, activist, wonderful women said, wait a minute, let's hear from women who've really had this experience. I went to cover that as a reporter for New York Magazine. And that was a moment of great revelation because I thought, wait a minute, you know, this is... <laughs> We're not know, represented. Yeah, well, and if one in three women has needed an abortion at some time in her lifetime, exactly why is it criminal and dangerous? Why? And you had your own experience with it. Yes, I did. From um, from being in London on my way to India after I graduated from college. Yes. And then your, your experience of it and how that affected your life was that uh, it, it was not uh, some sort of 
dramatic, uh, uh, emotionally scarring or, or immoral thing. No, not at all. Not yeah. at all. Um, it, it just, it was very clear to me that either either I gave birth to someone else and gave up my life right. and went back and married the wrong man. Right. <laughs> a, a nice guy, but definitely the wrong man. It yeah. would have been bad for both of us. Uh, or I gave birth to myself. And and when did you frame it like that? Did you know that in, intuitively then? Or I, did... I certainly knew it intuitively. I don't know if I would have said it in quite those that way. But it was... Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, the same act can be very negative. If if somebody wants a child and and economically can't afford it, or is being forbidden, you know, it's but it's infused with the reasons why you are going through this. And for me, it was very lib- liberatory. Right. Sure. And and you talk in the book a bit about about you know campaigning a lot for uh, for Democratic candidates. And that there was a, a, you know, I just finished reading that part where, you know, no matter how emotional, you know, uh, defeats or victories might have might have been along the course of doing that for McCarthy or Kennedy or, or Johnson as well, that when you were at that rally for Nixon, the, the, it seemed like that moment sort of indicated to you the future. Well, it it did because uh, so much had gone into it. You know, the murder of Martin Luther King, the murder of, uh, of both uh, Kennedys. Both Kennedys. Uh, so the death of the future was very inundating. You know, yeah. for for all of us, and we were we were in a huge kind of amphitheater or something in Florida. Yeah, and th- there th- this rally for Nixon was just so much by rote and so machine made and just propaganda and just over overwhelming you yeah. know it was like being under a steamroller right and i think the the other journalists were feeling it too i could i could sense that you know because the, for instance they were singing the battle hymn of the republic uh-huh. and i remember one of the other reporters saying they can't they can't sing that that's bobby's that's uh, Bobby's favorite hymn. They can't sing that. It was just at a very emotional moment. And that was '68. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was like the beginning of you know what four to how many years? Six years of just hell, <laughs> in a way. But those were empowering times to for the opposition as well, because when you had something to really fight against, it became clearer to people that might know what the not know what the fight is to really push back. Well, it's especially because the draft, right. you know, made. Uh, so many people vulnerable that it built the movement in and of itself right and caused people to leave the country caused people to you know i mean all all kinds of of caused some people to become violent in in opposition to the war well created the the hippie movement the uh the sds and right all of it was built around the resistance of that war. Yes, right. So, and and I I had a kind of weird special attachment to that whole issue because having lived in India for a couple of years, I I had heard about Ho Chi Minh mm-hmm. and I had actually read his poetry. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I kept thinking, you know, aren't we on the wrong side here? I mean, you know, because he it seemed to me that he wanted an autonomous, independent Vietnam, 
and that he was not going to lead to a takeover by China. In fact, that he was quite, you know, he didn't want to be taken over by China either. But this this was not a popular view, as you can understand. I mean, he, he was our enemy. But it did lead me to doing the first story I did for New York Magazine, which we were just then starting which was about Ho Chi Minh in New York, because it, I had heard from reporters who had interviewed him that he was very affectionate about New York and that he had lived there as a young man. Uh-huh. So since we were starting New York Magazine, I thought, okay, let's I'll research Ho Chi Minh in New York, Yeah, which I think delighted Clay Felker just because it was outrageous. The editor, be, yeah. <laughs> yes, of New York Magazine. You can push some buttons. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I... I I did do this story, even even though it got cut to shreds and was, you know, like a tenth of what I had written. Um, was there pushback? Was there was there a backlash to it? Did did it uh, did it cause controversy? Um, you know, that's a. It, it, I, if it did, I wasn't really exactly privy to it. I, mm-hmm. I don't think, although you didn't have internet the, I mean, comment it, boards. It, it, it led to surrealism. I mean, in in a real way, because I remember trying to fact check with yeah <laughs> about his time in New York with Ho Chi Minh and getting on the phone with the Western Union operator of that you know sending yeah. a, a wire oh so you were going to send a wire to Ho Chi Minh I did Mind. yeah right and and she was saying you know do you have a street address in Hanoi honey and I was saying no I, I just you know just Ho Chi Minh just the Go. presidential palace will probably be enough <laughs> And what did you get? And, did he, you know, then we're at war, and he's the leader of the other side. <laughs> did you, did he get back to you? No. Uh, <laughs> but when did you really start feeling that that feminism and and the women's movement it was you know really starting to pick up momentum? Uh, well, when I started to, uh, two things happened. One yeah. was that I couldn't get the editors I was then working for as a freelancer interested in this contagion of excitement the called feminism that was, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they, I mean, either they just weren't interested or if they were interested, they would say, well, if we publish an article saying women are equal, then we'll have to publish one next to it saying they're not. In False objectivity. Be, yes, in yeah. order to be objective. So it was pretty discouraging. And at the same time, because I had written a little bit in New York Magazine about the movement, I was getting invitations to speak. Mm-hmm. Now, I had devoted, uh, I mean, I was, what, in my late 30s, I guess, by then, and I had devoted all of my life to never speaking in public. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, Just writing. Yeah, just yeah. writing. I mean, I think in a way you choose to write because sure. you don't want to talk. Right? Yeah, oh yeah, you get a little distance. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I realized that that was the only way to get the word out. And fortunately, I had a friend, Dorothy Pittman Hughes, who is still my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was a um, she was running a childcare center, so she had and and she was married and had kids, so she had all these experiences that I did not have. And she's African American, and I'm European American, or whatever yeah. we want to call herself. So in every way, it seemed like a good thing to do. I just couldn't go by myself. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like we would be a good pair. And it turned out to be amazing, even though people in New York were telling us we would be stoned to death in Dubuque. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when we when we got to uh, the equivalent of Dubuque, sure. there would just be, you know, hundreds, even thousands of people in a stadium. You know, you could see 
that it was just catching fire. And I never would have known that if I hadn't traveled in that way. That there was this uh, this this desire to to have equal and fair representation and a voice. Well, it, it, and just to just to speak your experience, right? And you created an environment where they could do that. Yes, one of the good things about not wanting to talk is you leave a lot of time for discussion <laughs> and, 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 and for organizing, right? Right. And and what did organizing look like then? I mean, what was the primary? What were the initiatives? Uh, well. It depended, you know, somebody would get up in the audience and say, um, you know, there's no child care on this campus. And what it means is that the employees don't have it, the students don't have it. Uh, you know, why don't we demonstrate and try to get it? Or mm -hmm. there's no health clinic for women that dispenses uh, birth control or really, you know, deals right. with women. Uh, so maybe, you know, how can we pressure to get that? Or, you right. know, there were, they were issues on campus that were universal issues, but you could, um, you could organize around on campus. Now, if the students didn't go to class and demonstrated, nobody cared too much. Right. But if, and to some extent, if the professors had an issue about trying to initiate new courses or trying to get... Um, Tenure yeah. for for a beloved professor who you know right um, and and they pro protested it didn't do too much and if the uh, what then would have been the uh, clerical workers and and people on the switchboard and so on uh, wanted needed uh, better pay and they were but when you did it together right then it actually worked because. Right. They might not care when the students didn't go to class, but if now a phone call went around of that campus for <laughs> so, right. a day or two, they right. cared. So if we organized together, we could get something done. And, and, to, and to, to take action yes. on, on, in a massive way that had an impact. Yeah. Well, it didn't have to be massive. It just had to be enough people. Organized. So, yeah, so they, they couldn't uh, be expelled. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and things would stop working without, right, right yeah. Right. So, all right, let's, in the last 10 minutes or so that we have here, tell me about, like, because now there, there is a lot of, um, there's a, a kind of, I don't know if it, you would call it a, a redefinition or, or a renewed momentum to feminism, but it definitely culturally, there seems to be a resurgence of, of, of activism and, and consciousness. And um, I guess, what do you think are the biggest issues now are they the same issues is there progress being made it, it, you know when you're out there talking to people uh, around reproductive rights obviously and around um fair pay and equal rights and that stuff but how has it changed in in, in for better or for mm. worse i think it's deepened and widened mm -hmm. so when in the past we would have been trying to name domestic violence which didn't even have a name right and trying to reform police procedures and keep them from thinking that their goal was to get the criminal and the victim back together again. Mm -hmm. you know, th right. th that was their definition of success. <laughs> we but... can work it out. <clears throat> right. She'll get used to it. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, there came to be a better a, a definition of domestic violence, better laws, ed educating the police departments, having shelters, uh, instead of a kind of safety system with just people who were 
willing to make a bedroom available to right. the fa- women and her kids who were in emergency, but actual shelters. So th- that that continued and continues now. And sexual assault as well. Is and sexual assault that uh, to to redefine rape in, in so that it was understood to be. Uh, violence, not sex, mm-hmm. and to and degrees of sexual assault, uh, punishing that uh, sexual assault of men too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has continued, and now you see it in very specific ways. Say sexual assault on campus, right. or sexual assault in the military, using those definitions right. uh, to to really ad- address what had what was invisible before. Right. And in terms of uh, uh, reproductive rights, it, was it, um, is it, is it an, an ongoing disappointment that it has become a state-by-state issue and not a national issue? Uh, not exactly, because the, the so-called right-to-life groups abandoned Washington because they couldn't get what they want. Mm-hmm. They, wa- they wanted a so-called human life amendment to the Constitution. Uh, they did get... Uh, they were successful in restricting federal funds for poor women, so now the system greatly discriminates against poor women. Nonetheless, they couldn't outlaw abortion altogether as they wanted. So that's a, so, a, a so victory. They, so they so they so now they and also they discovered, I guess, to their shock, that murdering abortion doctors and burning down bombing clinics didn't make them popular. Mm-hmm. So instead, now they're going to state legislatures, especially those controlled by right-wing forces, which is, you know, state legislatures in general are much more likely to be controlled by conservative forces even than Congress. And it's, it's they kind of legislate or redistricting themselves into perpetuity. So, you know, if you've already got the insurance industry and... and uh, people building prisons instead of giving money to universities and so on in control of a legislature that's much more likely that they're going to be able to put such uh, draconian, terrible restrictions, ridiculous restrictions on clinics that they will be able to close them down. And that's what they're trying to do now. Right. And and where where do you stand on, on there? You know, there is how do you because you in your career, you've done satire. You've you've used humor. Listen, I love. I was so happy when I was being a comedy writer for Saturday night for uh, uh, the that, that was, was the week that was. Yeah. I was in heaven. There's a power to it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, there and, is and, making people laugh and and learn and and raising yeah. awareness through that way. Right. Now, how do you feel about the the sensitivity? You know, around language, around what what gets called political correctness around the you know sort of you know hostile and you know the the idea that that certain language should be off limits uh in terms of whether it's sexist or or the idea of rape jokes and this type of stuff do you think that there's a point where there's an overreaction well maybe but uh, you know political correctness is a term we invented to make fun of ourselves right you know so <laughs> <laughs> um but i think if what what it kind of boils down to is that outsiders mm-hmm. are likely to be, should be aware of uh, tender feelings when they use terminology 
that could be overgeneralizing or insulting. Right. But within the community that you're talking about, the the humor is is there. The question is, right. who has a right to to say this? Who has the the experience, the right. daily lived experience? Right. Right. And that's always the way it works within you know certain uh, communities. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Jewish humor is sure. great, right? But uh, not everybody can do it. Yes, it's wasps <laughs> doing Jewish humor is not so great. So, but it's not illegal. It shouldn't be illegal. But if you're going to no. say something, you're going to take the hit, maybe. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. No, it's not about the law, but it is about uh, acceptability and protest. And what do you think? How do you feel about the the sort of like? It, it seems to me that in the '80s. There was a right-wing reaction to pornography, and now it seems to be the biggest business in the country uh, in, in a certain respect, and, and there is a full pornographication of, of the world through the Internet. Right. Do you think that that is, is, is destructive to, to women, to intimacy, to, yeah, you know? Yeah, it is, it is destructive. I mean, I think that we have successfully said uh, rape is not sex, it's violence. Mm. But what we haven't yet successfully said is that pornography is not erotica. Mm-hmm. Porne means female slaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eros has an idea of love and mutual pleasure and free choice. And I fear that uh, pornography is taking over sex that, that, when, in, when in fact it's way more about domination. And also about uh, about it, there, there's... Um it's completely devoid of uh, of, uh, of story or, or poetry, anything else, and it does feed a certain compulsion. But but there is a there was sort of a subset of of, of feminism that w- felt empowered if they were able to appropriate uh, pornography or the sex industry that it was somehow I- empowering. Well, it, but it usually turned into erotica. Right. <laughs> I mean, that, right. Yeah. That, that because it was it be- quite different. It I mean, it became niche and not general porn in a y- way. You know, it's 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 hard to um, I mean, you have to let everybody self-define sure. because because if somebody has been profoundly sexually abused as a child, mm-hmm. it may have so entwined sexuality and pain that right. you can't get it unentwined. You know, and you may not that, know that, and it you know that it takes a while. So yeah. it is about you know respecting where where we are, but in a wherever that is, but in a general way, nature tells us what's good for us by making it pleasurable, and what's bad for us by making it painful. So it's important to disentangle those two things, and also to um, to to say there is such a thing as erotica. You know, mm-hmm. not not to let uh, pornography pretend to be uh, the only form of sexuality, much less uh, an acceptable form of it. I mean, it's really about domination and passivity. Mm-hmm. And what about in, in terms of, um, like, I, I feel that I- in the book and, and certainly talking to you that you feel there has been progress made on all fronts. Yeah. No, I, I yes, it just not enough. <laughs> 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 well, they, do you think there will ever be a national equal rights amendment? Yes, it's coming back, actually. There's a very good book by Jessica Newworth about the equal rights amendment and how it could and should and why we need it. Mm-hmm. People, the, the barrier now is that people think we already have it. They, they don't understand that, say, you know, we lost the lawsuit against Walmart because we 
didn't have it. And that and, and that's an education issue in terms of like I, I imagine that your sort of propulsion to to continue to go out there and talk to people. I imagine that you meet a lot of um you know not not necessarily ignorance but just people who are consumed with their lives and may not be that's that's true it it is an education issue but it's also a power issue right because the fact that women are still paid unequally is contributing to the massive profits of a lot of corporations and, and I who imagine- don't want to pay women equally. But there's a lot of barriers. For instance, in New York State, I don't know about California, but we had to get a piece of legislation, uh, free speech legislation, in order to protect people against getting fired if they told each other what they were earning. How uh-huh. crazy is that? They, that? It's the one thing we know, how much yeah. we're making. <laughs> and, they, and you had to go through those hoops just to yes, get... Yes, you're right, so that nobody can get fired uh, just for sharing the fact of their salary. It's, it's the, the way the government's... Do you believe democracy can and does or will, again, work properly? Yes, because it worked before Columbus showed up, so maybe we... <laughs> <laughs> we can get back there. Okay. No, really, I mean, the the um, consensus circles of of uh, governance yeah. that the Iroquois Confederacy and the six huge nations that covered much of America, it was a very sophisticated form of governance, which our constitution imitated, mm-hmm. but unfortunately left out women and left in slavery. <laughs> so right. so we, we, we have a way to go to get back to the level of sophistication that was here in the first place. Well, it was great talking to you, and I enjoyed the book, and, uh, and, and uh, safe travels. Thank you so much. Quite, uh, quite an overview. I was proud of myself. Got a lot in. And uh, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you on, uh, on Thursday, okay? Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. Things to do. Things to do. I'll play a little guitar. <laughs>